One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com/join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca/canadaland to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Borowell. Do you know your credit score? Because if you want to buy a home, sign a lease, or finance a car, you are going to need a good credit score, and you can check your credit score out for free in like three minutes when you go to borrowwell.com. And by the way, checking at borrowwell.com will not affect your credit rating. Look, you can make money from news. I know that it can sometimes sound that way on this show, that it's impossible to make money from news. You hear about these stories week after week. Post Media just announced they're cutting another 20% of their workforce. But the solution is out there. News will make you money if you can get the most possible people in the world to read a story while spending the least possible amount of money in generating that story. You certainly don't go and report the news yourself. I mean, that, that, would, be like, that would be like raising a cow in order to sell a burger. That's not even an appropriate analogy because you still would have to buy the ground beef. I mean, this is just not an expense anymore. The journalism, the reporting, no, forget it. That's the first thing you get rid of. You get your news from somebody else. You let somebody else go out and report that news. 
and then you repackage and you deliver it. This is Huffington Post through to BuzzFeed and a thousand others. This is a business that exists. And it's all about putting your resources into the things that actually get you more readers. I mean, that's not the journalism. That's like, I mean, it's very sophisticated. These companies will go out and, and a news story will have a dozen or a hundred different headlines and there's an algorithm that's testing in real time which headline gets the most clicks and changing the words in the headline. It's just finding the biggest audience possible. And if the bottom falls out of the online display advertising business, if, if the CPMs, the cost per thousand to an advertiser of what it, what it costs to reach their eyeballs gets cut in half, well, then you're just going to have to get twice as many people to read your story or spend half as much money as you used to in getting that story out there. So that's the business. That is the news business that is a going concern in 2016. I don't talk about it all that much on this show because it has very little to do with, with journalism, with news reporting, especially in Canada where we just don't even have the eyeballs, we don't have the population to sustain that model really well, such as it is. The burning question here is who's actually going to report that stuff in the first place if the newspapers and news organizations keep getting cut to the point where they just won't be here anymore. Okay, this season we are looking at people who are finding other ways to make money off of the news. Radical models, perhaps unlikely to succeed models because they are actually based on reporting news stories. And today we're going to look at a company out of Vancouver that is doing just that. They are called Discourse Media. I think that what they're doing, though they're borrowing a lot of ideas from other companies in the States, the way that they're doing it is wholly unique. They might be the most interesting news startup in this country. And I'm going to speak to their founder, Aaron Millar, in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Aaron Warner, W.D. Clark, Corin Whiteaway, Kelly Lefebvre, Doug Giroux, James McKinney, Jacob L., and Sam Mills. Sam, why did you decide to be awesome? Because as a librarian, as well as as a podcaster myself, I appreciate the efforts of independent media to keep citizens informed. I learn more about my country and my neighbors every time I listen to Canada Land. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what 
Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by 2,824 patrons, people who support this show. Guys, that is almost 500 new supporters from when I spoke to you last week. Almost 500 new people supporting this show. Welcome. Thank you so much. You are paying for literally hundreds of thousands of people to hear this show, and you have helped us to pay our staff better. We are now going to be able to give that raise to everybody here but me, to our contractors, freelancers. Wages are going up across the board. Beyond that, you funded a new investigative journalism fund for Canada Land. Last year, we were able to get libel insurance thanks to our patrons. This year, we're able to actually dedicate money towards stories that are not about getting a podcast on the air next week or about a news story that we're going to report in three weeks. We can actually assign long-term, in-depth investigative journalism. And I have to tell you, I have a pile of leads on my desk, of stories that we have been unable to dedicate the proper resources into. We can finally crack into that and see if there's something to tell you about there. We will be working with experienced investigative journalists to tell you those stories. Thank you so much. We are pushing forward for a couple of different reasons. One reason is that you're going to see when we turn over from October to November, our funding is going to dip like $400, $500 possibly because every month people's credit cards expire. Some of those people take the trouble to put in their new credit card and continue supporting Canada Land. Other people, that's the time when they stop. So we need to replenish the crowdfunder or the money will eventually all dry up and we only ask you to help us replenish that crowdfunder once a year. I am asking you. The next goal that we're driving towards is a pilot development fund. And what that means is that anybody is going to be able to pitch to us a new Canada Land series. If you have an idea for a Canada Land show and we have this fund in place, you can pitch it to us and we will select from that list of pitches a few different ideas that we will make an episode, a pilot, a tester, to see if that's a show that we want to make. And we will involve the audience in making our ultimate decision. And if we have that money, if we have that resource, we will launch a new podcast in 2017 with your support. We only expand Canada Land when our supporters tell us that they want us to expand with their dollars in supporting us. So if that sounds like something that you think we should be getting into, if that's something that you want to see us pursue, go to patreon.com slash Canada Land right now. Give us a dollar a month. Give us $4 a month. Think about what a coffee or a meal costs you a month and what that brings in your life. Think about where we fit into your life and give us what you are comfortable giving us. If any of this sounds good to you, if you think you might do it, but then you don't do it, just do it. Do it now. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, this episode is also brought to you by a brand new sponsor. And I love it when there is a product that I have already used because I wanted to use it and I like using it. And then they approach us and ask us about sponsoring CanadaLand. That's what's happened with Borowell. And what Borowell does is they give you access to your own credit rating. That's why I like this company, because they are empowering people with information that has huge bearing over your life. I mean, whether you were going to get a loan or get a new car or get a job, all of these people had access to this number about you, and most people didn't have access. It cost money, and, and the process was murky. Nobody was checking out their own credit rating. Borowell lets you get your own credit rating for free, and it takes like three minutes. After you sign up online, you'll see your credit score, what it means, and how it compares to other Canadians. They offer great tips on how to maintain or improve your credit score. 
This is a free service and it does not affect your credit rating. You don't change your credit rating by looking at it. When you need to borrow for important things like buying a new home, signing a new lease, financing a car, the institutions you'll borrow from will all consider this information. Why don't you consider it as well? Landlords, employers, having a good credit score will help you save money because the better your credit score is, the more likely you are to pay lower interest. Sometimes we avoid checking this information because we're afraid of what we're going to find. People knowing your credit score is the first step to improving it. Get it for free. Go to borrowwell.com. This episode is also brought to you by ShipStation. ShipStation is the company that makes it very easy to ship things online if that is something that you do for your business or for your side hustle. If you're sending people stuff online, you're selling it through a bunch of different places, it is a pain in the neck to keep track of those orders. ShipStation will do it for you. In the time that it took me to tell you about that, you could have signed up for ShipStation, linked in all of your different selling points, Etsy, Shopify, your own website, and ShipStation will automatically suck your orders from those places, put them all on their own very easy-to-use app. They will direct you to the easiest and cheapest carrier, Canada Post, UPS, FedEx. They will spit out a shipping label that is the most inexpensive option for you. No wonder their reviews are so high. Shopify users give ShipStation a 5 out of 5. That's a perfect score. They are the number one choice for online sellers. And right now, you can try ShipStation for free for 30 days. And there will be a special bonus on top of that, but only if you use the offer code CANADALAND. Go to the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in CANADALAND. That is ShipStation.ca, offer code CANADALAND. What what is this solutions journalism business? We're, I always thought that we were in the problem business, not the solutions business. Like we we uh, we we find problems, we prove that they are problems, we point out problems. What, what is the solutions part of that? Um, after reporting for about a decade for um, mainstream media outlets like the Globe and Mail and Maclean's Magazine and some other places, and I was freelancing at the time, and I'd reported on education. I felt like I was just becoming this broken record of writing kind of the same stories over and over again about, you know, this funding crisis or this labor dispute. And I just sort of lost connection to how that was actually making an impact on the issues. After you report on any system, I think for, for like a decade, you start to understand some of the systemic issues that are at play and like what is actually impacting our education system and why it wasn't improving. What it means to discourse media is that when we're uh, beginning a report on some issue or a big project, we pause, we do some analysis around where the discussion impacting that issue is at, and really ask ourselves, like, okay, what can we contribute? I mean, I also say that we have the luxury of doing that because we're not in the daily news cycle. Um, everything that we do has to add value or or we wouldn't do it because that's um, the basis of our model as well. So it is a luxury to be able to pause and do that analysis. Well, I want to pause and analyze what you just said, because I feel like there's something in there that can be applied to kind of a larger critique of just the news cycle itself. You've got this beat that you had 10 years of experience reporting on in education. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, that what constituted uh, a story when you were reporting for a general interest newspaper to the everyday reader about what's new in the education beat, it would be a problem, like an anomaly, like if test scores took a huge dip or if there was some funding problem. Is that the kind of thing that would be a news story for you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I came to understand the challenge that I was having at that point in my career as being like twofold. One, it was about news values. Um, The other problem, of course, was resources. There's a lot of uh, a lot of investigative journalism being cut back, layoffs, problems with resources, and I was having fewer and fewer opportunities to do big, ambitious projects um, as a freelancer, as an independent based in Vancouver, in, in contractual relationships with these different media outlets, um, and that's the kind of work I wanted to be doing. 
like when we talk about solutions journalism, which is, you know, a, a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and not a lot to most people, sometimes it gets a little bit shit on because it's seen as being sort of fluffy or advocacy journalism or something like that. But in reality, I think these can be, when done well, these can be really fascinating stories. I mean, when we do look at solutions that are potentially really impactful, there's there's lots to criticize there. There's lots of hard questions to ask, and they can be really, really interesting stories with lots of twists and turns. So that's how we, we think about them, is more like magazine features. And, and I think that we're trying to bring that sort of approach to storytelling into the digital space. So Well, I want to return to that in a bit as to you know why there's such skepticism or why solutions uh, journalism gets, gets shit on. Uh, I just have questions and skepticism about it because it does contradict some of the kind of basic ideas of how we're supposed to, to tell a story. But I, I want to know how you deal with that problem. Before that, though, I mean... I'm just kind of curious of this business story of discourse media because I identify with certain aspects of what you've done in, in building this this company, and then other things are just totally different um, than what I've done or what the, uh, really anybody in the country I'm aware of doing. And and these are always just fun stories to see how different career journalists like yourselves, who actually and we don't have enough of this, are taking a cold hard look at the landscape and saying, well. How can I reimagine this? And uh, it almost feels like rather than being a solo artist, you decided to, to, to put together a band. <laughs> yeah. Colleen Kimmett, who worked as an editor at the Taiyi and was had a hand in founding the Taiyi Solutions Society. And Christine McLaren, um, who's a journalist who worked, her, her job before coming to Discourse was actually as an embedded reporter with uh, a traveling exhibit with the Guggenheim Museum that was looking at the future of cities. She kind of came out of that feeling like, how can I go back to plain old freelancing? Like that was such a fascinating assignment for um, an urban development reporter to be focused on. And so she was having some of the same sort of frustrations and, and Colleen as well. Uh, she reports a lot on food systems and nutrition and things like that. And and again, was just saying like, look, I want to dig in deeper, but I'm not finding the opportunities to do that. So the three of us came together and initially we um, imagined Discourse Media being more like a collective of freelancers in a way. We were pitching larger projects to media outlets and our first revenue stream was media outlets. You know, we were sort of a one-stop shop where you could come and commission a package that could be edited, reported, all at a high level with mid-career reporters that they knew they could rely on. You could also get data interactives, you could get photography, you could get a whole package. Our idea was that as there was more and more layoffs and there'd be fewer and fewer um, staff reporters available that media outlets would still be wanting to do those big marquee projects, but wouldn't necessarily have the in-house staff to do them. So we were almost like more like a production company, like a, a film production company, but doing digital. We quickly found that our assumptions about what it actually costs to run a business were very quickly overturned. We're journalists, not business people. We just couldn't get the level of revenue to a reasonable state where media outlets would pay the full cost of producing this stuff. It's expensive to produce, as we know. And we were also really surprised by when we started actually tracking how much time we put into a big feature, like, oh my gosh, like that's, I should have done that when I was a freelancer. That's why I never made as much money as I wanted. Anyway, so we had to come up with something new. And at that time, we introduced another revenue stream, which is similar to what's happening in the nonprofit 
sector in the States where we're working with different nonprofits and foundations that really see that there's a need for more reporting around some issue, but will commit to a very, very rigid and strong editorial independence clause in, in contracts that we have with them. So these are, are organizations that will sponsor a project around an issue, but have absolutely no influence on the editorial itself, don't see it until everybody else does. And so that was that took quite a while to sort of build that because there's not there's not a, a tradition of that here. And we could point to what was happening in the States and, and work with the best practices that organizations like ProPublica have developed around this stuff to really protect the integrity of the journalism. But it still took a lot of conversations and a lot of development to bring enough people on side. So that's one chunk of our revenue. We still have a chunk of revenue that comes from media syndication. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes at Discourse. So um, we do things like a media analysis before we go into an issue, and that's a report that can be of value to another client and we can get that sponsored. So uh, another way that we thought, okay, we can we can reuse or repackage the competency of journalism is when we send a reporter out and they spend you know, a month or whatever digging into some issue, they have all of this information, some of which only, you know, a small sliver of which ends up in the feature that's going to run um, in uh, our media outlet. Um, but there's all this other stuff that's totally of value to the people who are trying to figure out that issue area or whatever. So how else can we use that information? So we've done that by bringing our, our journalists to different conferences, doing talks, sort of just like packaging those things in different ways, hosting workshops, so that sort of um, event kind of business. So that's another way that we, that we um, generate revenue. Can you break this down into a practical uh, kind of review? Like, what are the greatest hits so far, just in terms of the actual stories that you guys have reported on? Uh, I think one of the greatest hits was definitely a collaboration that we did with uh, the great reporter Nancy McDonald at McLean's Magazine earlier this year. She was reporting on why Indigenous people are so overrepresented in the prison system. She was doing like a whole system analysis of this, so looking at it from the court from the police, from all these different places, and she found it really frustrating that she couldn't learn more about um, what was happening at the police level. So there was lots of anecdotal evidence that there was racial profiling happening on the streets by police in Western Canada where her investigation was focused, and yet there's very little data about it. So she came to us and said, you know, what what can we do about this? Like, I want my piece to be, like, have a really strong data backing to it in addition to the awesome narrative that you know, that she does. And we collaborated on something and we had our, our data journalists do that. And we actually designed an original survey after going through the FOI process and getting stonewalled by all the police departments across Western Canada. We said, OK, we got to We got to come up with some original research then. So we designed a survey and we did this in collaboration with academics who had done work. One of them had actually done work on the um, the research behind the carding of black people in, in Ontario and Toronto to help us design a survey that could really dig into this. So we interviewed um, almost a thousand people in Winnipeg and Regina and Saskatoon. Our research suggested that that there was a higher, you were more likely to be stopped by police controlling for all um, socioeconomic background and all of that kind of stuff if you were Indigenous, if not. And that's literally the only data that exists in Canada that has done that. And that has shown that or that has even asked that question that's publicly available. So we've made that available by um, uh, to anybody who wants to use it. It's been used by lots of different media outlets. So we created a data interactive that 
that McLean's published, but we also made available to local publications to use. The Star Phoenix, for example, continued to follow up locally on that story, and we just saw a lot of impact, and the local publications really um, followed up with their local police departments there. The reason that that one was also so powerful was because that data just didn't exist. So it was able to be used in an inquiry into the death of an Indigenous man um, in police custody. It inspired a talk, an MP from Winnipeg to do a speech in the House of Commons. Like we just saw a lot of different talk. And then about a few months later, the um, Manitoba legislature actually changed the uh, freedom of information laws because police were formally exempt in Manitoba, which is just insane. So we actually wrote a piece about that on the Canaland website. So there you go. Anything else come to mind? Well, we won the the uh, 2016 Innovation Award from the Canadian Journalism Foundation um, this year for our project Moving Forward, which was, again, another data journalism project. And that was one where um, it was very local to Vancouver. There was a really high-stakes transportation referendum happening here. TransLink, our transportation authority here, is famously very not transparent and, and has a hostile relationship with a lot of journalists. We said, okay, we can create a project out of that. And we crowdfunded this one because we wanted it to be independent of any media outlet um, so that we could make the reporting that we were producing available to all of them in what is a small and competitive media market here. We just did all the stuff that that like a daily reporter is just not going to have time to do and packaged it in such a way that they could use it. So, for example, we created a data interactive and our own reporting around it um, that looked at the full cost of transportation in different modes. So you could put in your commute and it would calculate what the full cost to you and to society was if you drove, if you walked, if you took the bus or if you cycled. Right. And that put a cost on carbon, it put a cost on your wait time, um, it put a cost on your impact on the healthcare system. It was this really complicated full cost accounting idea that we were able to use and that was picked up by 13 different media outlets and and really help people understand like what is the like what is the impact of making active transportation choices. It feels really like bleeding edge. A lot of the stuff that you're saying it answers problems that have been bedeviling newsroom reporters forever, you know, just the amount of information that gets left out. And then your conception of what you do as a service and not a product, that uh, you're not going to paywall something. You're going to make this freely available for as many people as you can uh, at different tiers when it makes sense to do so. Mm -hmm. All of that is like really contemporary thinking. And yet you are still very much dependent on that partnership with the news outlet, either commissioning a story or picking up your stories. I'm looking now at this report that was funded by Ashoka. Yeah. It reads like an academic report. No dig at the writing, but it is a hefty, in-depth, uh, large report. The The format of the newspaper headline story has been, you know, finely developed over decades to be readable. Like, you know, there's something to be said for something that, that your average reader can connect with, that it grabs their attention. And I feel like, you know, the Nancy McDonald story, you needed that kind of tawdry McLean's, you know, is Winnipeg the most racist city in, in Canada? That, that was an effective headline, as sensationalistic as it may have been, to get people to care about this stuff and actually do that deep dive. And then just from a funding point of view, 
you are still dependent on an industry that is in serious trouble. And if they go down, I wonder if you don't go down with them. I mean, there's a short-term play that makes a lot of sense for you and also for wire services. When the newspapers don't have the resources to do big enterprise journalism, partnering up with a savvy and improvisatory lean outfit like you guys is probably a good cost savings for them. But McLean's just went monthly. You know, uh, those budgets are getting smaller and smaller. So are you not hitching yourself to like a a dying star? We don't exclusively um, publish reports like what you were reading that was commissioned by Ashoka that is like literally a report. Generally, when we do assignments, there is some sort of extremely readable uh, multimedia digital feature that comes out of it that is packaged for a general audience. And in addition to that, we'll produce some sort of report that we know that we can sell to someone um, because that's how we can fund the resource intensive kind of work that we do. So another package that we did called Divide and Conquer, which was uh, an investigative report into what was happening with consultation of the indigenous communities along the Skeena River that were are, are gonna be impacted if this Patronus LNG proposal goes forward that was just approved by the federal government. And um, this is a great example of where there's really an acute need for investigative traditional reporting. This is one of the biggest business deals in Canada that um, uh, is being proposed and it's happening in, in the north of BC where there's where there really is not a lot of media. There's, you know, there's CBC is up there. They have a few reporters based in, in Prince Rupert, but that's kind of it. And the rest of the reporters up there are, um, you know, in the employ of Black Press, whose owner is is very involved in the resource development field, so yes. it has yes. some some conflicts of interest there that he has that he has exercised as well. The power that that he has to sort of control um, what is said about resource development in his in his publication. So, and and the people there generally do not uh, are not in the national narrative about the future of our economy. Like these aren't people who get listened to enough. We found that the claims that were being made by Premier Christy Clark around consultation were frankly just untrue and um, you know she was claiming that there was these votes that had happened and the communities had uh, this one particular community Lac Lomes was in support of this LNG proposal and we went and asked and there was no meeting really (laughs) yeah yeah we said, all right, there's a lot of investigative uh, journalism to be doing here. There's a really fascinating story about what has happened to this small town that is at the center of this development proposal. So we told that story in what I think is, is a very beautifully um, produced multimedia feature that was published by us. We created a more news-driven treatment of it uh, that was published by BuzzFeed to help us drive traffic and reach. And then we also created a report that studied the flow of information in this region specifically because we were interested in in these places where um, they are facing these huge, huge decisions about the economy. Where is information coming from? What is the media landscape? We produce all of those different things from this one project. And, and then we were able to monetize those in all different ways to cover the cost of you know, to, we had two full-time reporters on this for six weeks, and there was travel involved and all those kinds of things. So we, uh, like any good freelancer, when you go on a trip overseas, you don't just produce one piece. You got to figure out how to sort of piggyback assignments on different things. Like, that's kind of the same approach that we're taking here. And then secondly, you're right to point out that one of the challenges of our model right now is that we are 
publishing um, and relying quite a lot on what is uh, a syndication sort of partner media partnership model for our distribution. This is a, a piece of our model that we took by looking at what ProPublica is doing, what the Center for Investigative Reporting in the States is doing, where they're producing these packages and they want them to be as impactful as possible. So that has been our approach up until now. And I do agree that that is something that we will have to, we, we are addressing and we will have to address because because I don't believe that the audiences are there. Like I, for example, so with the Moving Forward project that I, I told you about, where we created these eight these eight packages, made them available to media outlets and, and 13 different media outlets picked them up. So we actually, uh, here's one of our dirty secrets. We actually hosted all of those data interactives. So we would just give an embed code to the media outlet so they could embed those, that iframe into their website. And that allowed us to capture- oh, So you got the traffic. You so know we the got traffic the there. data. Yeah. So we knew how much, um, I might be shooting myself in the foot and sharing that, but we knew- how many people were interacting with our data interactives through different media outlets. And that was pretty powerful information for us. Just to decode that for people, your, your home base where you guys have your branding up and it's your site, you figure this is going to be the least traffic thing. We're getting pickup from major mainstream newspapers. Yeah. That's where the traffic is going to be there. We're, we're, we have the info. That's the distribution. But I, I have a feeling you found out that that was not the case. No. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it was a big part of our, our traffic for sure. But what was way more powerful was smart use of Facebook. Uh And we found that so much of the audience was consuming our content on our website, on this website. We were doing our own reports um, around it. And, you know, we we have the luxury of kind of going deeper and we got kind of wonky and and, uh, in the pieces that we were writing about these data interactives in a way that you wouldn't find in the Vancouver Sun, for example. So some of these pieces really like picked up and were shared a lot on Facebook and people were consuming them on our website. So that was kind of an eye opener for me saying like, okay, we don't necessarily need to be working through media outlets anymore. There are ways for the right package, if it is genuinely what um, we always want to be, providing value that other media outlets are not able to do, there is a way for those to find audiences. And I don't think that discourse media could have existed three or five years ago, but we're in a really interesting moment. And um, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see where it goes. It's frightening, isn't it? I mean, that's not just your dirty secret. I don't necessarily think it's a dirty secret, but I think it's the mainstream media's dirty secret. We still prize that kind of pickup and 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 when people are kind of doing their media reports in the PR business and they're showing like look we had our product reviewed or our story got picked up by this big newspaper and this television broadcast it yeah. sounds really good those brands still have value totally but but you know it's it's kind of like you look at the actual numbers and like you say, you don't need like you don't even need them for the distribution. Maybe you need them for their brands to be able to say discourse got picked up by XX and X when you're when you're trying to get funding from some other third party. It's yeah. important to say we were in the Globe and Mail, but the traffic that actually comes from some of those sources is kind of paltry. And so if they if they can't really give you meaningful traffic, or that's not their they're not dominant in that, and they're not your number one revenue source anymore, you kind of start to wonder what place they have at the table. I, I have to imagine that as you guys go forward more and more of your revenue is going to come from places other than your mainstream media partners. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I agree with with what you said there. Like now when we approach different media partnerships, we think about it really strategically. We're asking ourselves, okay, we created this this investigative package. Who needs to read this for us to have the impact that we want to have? And sometimes it's 
Justin Trudeau. And then we need to make sure that it's in McLean's or that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're targeting it. I know you work with these people, so I don't understand anything, but I think about this too. And, you know, it's not necessarily like, oh, who do I want to work with or where is it going to get the most? You're, you're, you're playing the game of which brand is the best fit for what you want this piece to do. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, we just want as many people to read this as possible. So that impacts who we work with. Um, sometimes we like, we're doing a project right now that won't uh, be published for quite some time but it's really important for us that we're reflecting back the reporting that we're doing to the local community so we're going to work with a local radio station that's independent in the small town and that's that is the most important audience to us because everybody in that small town listens to this radio station that is like the hub of information for that place so we can be yeah we're just really strategic about it and we don't just assume the big players are who we need to be with um it, it was also really important for us to be working with those organizations earlier in our existence when we're still building our credibility. And I mean, I will I will agree with you and admit that a lot of the funders that we work with still want to see things in those big publications because of the brand, Sure. because they mean a lot to them. Even if people in the media industry are starting to say like, okay, well, what's next, right? Yeah. There's an important place for, for all of those publications in my view. Like I am I, you know, I definitely do not revel in what is happening at Post Media, and, and I believe that the Globe and Mail is going to be there in its forum for a long time, and I want to support that as well. But I, I definitely think that we can, we can also be adding value. Speaking of your funding, I appreciate that you are diligent in your deals with them, and it's contractually reflected that they have no editorial influence and mm-hmm. that it's complete church and state. But come on. If if you are getting your money from a special interest, from a charity that has a particular point of view, and let's say you guys are as pure as the driven snow, you go out there, you don't know what you're going to find, you do your reporting, and you come up with a story that is inimical and, and contrary to the interests of your funders, that's the last deal you're going to have with that funder. I mean, that that is something that does have to have some impact on the information that you guys are reporting. I totally recognize that that is a weakness in this model. There's been tons of criticism of this in the states of the nonprofit news, and I've got concerns about, or the sort of nonprofit news sector, I should say, and I've got concerns about the impact of all of that private money coming from philanthropy into media in the states and having created this whole industry around it that is providing a ton of of the news in the states at this point like it is quite crazy and i've got concerns about that and that's why we're that's one of the reasons that we're a company not a nonprofit because we don't actually see ourselves um, having that as our primary revenue source into the future like what we really where we really think we're going to be able to scale and be the media organization that we want to be that's truly independent is when we can be developing more earned revenue streams and a more diverse um, set of revenue streams. What does that mean? If it's not coming from media partners and it's not coming from nonprofits, then who's it going to come from? Oh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff in the in the can right now, a whole bunch of different things that we're experimenting with. But I mean, it will continue to come from media outlets. We're in talks with a couple of different media outlets about syndication deals that would partnerships that would be would would represent quite a bit of revenue. So that's one piece. We, there will continue to be a role for philanthropy in our business model. Like that will definitely be there, but we also need to be introducing more event services. We're looking at different types of subscription and crowdfunding models. There's a lot of different models that we're looking at. And what we would like to be is is have 
take a little bit of ProPublica, take a little bit of Deck Correspondent in Holland, where they are really, really fully supported by their audience and what you guys are doing, take a little bit of the Texas Tribune, where they have a really diverse revenue streams that are coming from a lot of different places, because I do feel like that's where you get the most independence is when you're not catering only to foundations or you're not catering only to a particular audience as well. Like, I mean, I think um, there are risks of, of having editorial decisions made to cater to a particular audience, which whether that's like you're going to make more populist decisions or whether you kind of narrow your coverage because your audience, that the only audience that you can monetize is those who make over $100,000 a year. Like we see that all the time in what's happening in some of the media outlets right now that are still focused on advertising models. So yeah, so that that's our vision, and I don't want to go too much deeper into it because we got some things we're gonna <laughs> keep in the can until we're ready to to open them. But the other thing I'll say about the foundation model and the the sort of weaknesses in that is that I really think you know this is something that I believed when I was a freelancer as well that if we're not in the position to walk from any partnership, then we truly aren't independent, and that's been a value that we've had from the beginning. And we have had partnerships break up because when, you know, push came to shove on that independence clause, we were not able to do our work in the way that we wanted to. So we ended those partnerships. When you're trying to start a business and you don't know if it's going to work or not, and your principles are put to the test like that, uh, it, 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 it's dramatic. I mean, these are like moments out of a movie where, you know, totally. do you want to succeed or do you want to stay true to what, to your values? But I think we only succeed if we do stay true to that because our value is in our credibility with our audience and our credibility with our media partners as well. While we are in this position where we're still distributing really strongly through through um, partnership with media outlets, we need to be able to defend that um, or they're going to they're going to say, you know, we can't work with you. And I think that's a reasonable criticism. Yeah. But I would say also that I had I faced some of those problems when I worked for media outlets, too. Um, as a freelancer, I mean, I I had a feature about a particular industry that was that was changed in response to uh, an advertiser's complaints when they somehow found out about it before it was published. I, how did they find out about it? That's an interesting question to dig into. It is. Can, can you tell me more about it? No. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you. That's another show. <laughs> um, but none of these models are perfect. That's what I'm saying. And you know what? None of these models have have. It, it, it's never been perfect. You know, you put the advertising people in one side of the building and the, and the editorial on the other because you're trying to create some kind of perfection or order or structure and and put up walls and church and state and then they bleed into each other. It's never been perfect. But the point is, I think, to find a way to do the work and and uh, uh, you know, I have to commend you guys. You're, you're you you seem to be doing that in a really interesting and contemporary way. And I I just want to ask. Uh, just sort of entrepreneur to entrepreneur. Sure. You you uh, you had twins last month. <laughs> yep, my twins were born on September nineteenth, so I have three babies. Uh, Discourse Media being one of them, and um, yeah, so far so good. That is your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime at jesse at canadalandshow I read everything you send me, and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com, and our crowdfunding site, which I will ask you again to go and check out right now, is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Commons is on hiatus while we search for new hosts. The Imposter has a new episode on Wednesday, and Shortcuts is on Thursday. 
The Imposter is doing an incredible live show in Toronto as part of the Hot Dogs First Podcast Festival. It is all about the incredible impact of Degrassi, 40 years of this Canadian franchise that has had a global impact. This will be an amazing show if you like The Imposter, if you're interested in Degrassi, either of those things or both. Check it out. It's on November 20th in Toronto. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Syndication is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.